Good morning, Woodland Hills. It's a wee bit nippy out there. Tomorrow they're saying the high, the high will be minus 17 with a wind chill of four, minus uh, 45 to 50 degrees below zero. That's, uh, I heard a, one person on the radio say that that is, just to put it in kind of a context, that's the average temperature on Mars. <laughs> so, so if you feel like a Martian tomorrow, that's, that's why. But you know, up in Fairbanks, they're laughing at us because they send it down their way and they get that all the time. So we like the cold. We're Minnesotans. Arr! Arr, eat it for breakfast. All right, well, we are studying, when we're not in the series, uh, we've been studying the a book of Colossians. And usually I read the passage up front and then talk about it, but I'm going to kind of mix things up a little this morning. I'm going to kind of lay a context for the passage, and then I'm going to read the passage, you know, 10, 15 minutes from now, and uh, then wrap it up and we'll take communion. And so the title of this message is, Among You to Be In You. And that won't make any sense at all until the message is done. So just kind of stick that in your craw and chew on it for a little bit. Um, let me start with this. About once a year on average, I would estimate, I get a call or an email or some other kind of contact from somebody who is convinced that a demon is trying to kill them in their sleep. Uh, they uh, report, they, they wake up and they are paralyzed and they, something is on top of them crushing them or choking them and they feel, they, they, they feel like they're suffocating. Sometimes they report uh, having kind of a tingly fe- feeling throughout their body like they're being electrocuted or something like that and they're convinced it's a demon. Uh, and I can totally resonate with that uh, experience because it's one I myself had several times as a teenager. And I am a believer, I, I believe in demons uh, and Satan. In fact, I think it's an important belief because if you don't believe in evil spirits, you're going to end up attributing a lot of the garbage of life to God uh, and he gets blamed for, for that stuff. So I believe in demons, but I don't think this, this experience is necessarily demonic. And here's why. First, I'll tell you about the experience I had. First happened when I was 13. I'm sure some of you have had this. It's actually more common than you might think. Where I woke up, it was a little after 4 in the morning. I could see the clock. I was wide awake. Uh, but I couldn't move. I was absolutely paralyzed. And there's this buzzing going on in my ears, or my head. In fact, my whole body felt like it, like it was being electrocuted. And I felt like I was suffocating. I couldn't breathe. It was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. The window of my bedroom was open, and the wind was blowing through it. And whenever there would be a gust of wind and the curtain would fly open, the electricity intensified. It was, it was like, so I felt like there was someone outside. You know, your brain tries to make sense out of this experience. I thought maybe there's a witch outside who's sending an evil spell through the window or something like that. And at this stage of my life, I didn't believe in God. Uh, I declared myself to be an atheist, didn't believe in evil spirits or anything. But in this moment, I thought there must be some kind of evil presence here. I'm, I'm being electrocuted. And it was absolutely terrifying. And I tried so hard to scream. I, I was just, my brother was on the other side of the room sleeping, and I was trying to like scream to get his help, but nothing would come out. You had dreams like that, nightmares where you just like. Oh. He just can't get it out. And finally, the, the, the electricity subsided enough so I could finally get my vocal cords working, and I let out the world's most blood-curling scream. I mean, my, my brother went to bed. It was just like, ah! I was just terrified. Now, he was terrified. But it was, it was an absolutely, um, oh, it, it was the most terrifying experience I'd ever had. Though I didn't believe in God or evil spirits or anything like that, I didn't sleep in that room for another three, three, three nights. <laughs> I was so spooked uh, that I didn't, you know, I was convinced something evil was going on there. It was only when my dad came back from a business trip um, that, uh, that uh, I was able to get back in the room because he said this to me. 
He said, Greg, there aren't evil spirits in this world. That's a bunch of hokey pokey stuff. He was wrong about that. But he was right about this. He goes, what you were experiencing is, uh, he called it a waking dream, which wasn't quite accurate, but that's the word he used. It's a waking dream, and it's just, your brain is kind of having a hiccup. It's, it's playing a mental trick on you. Um, and so it's nothing to be afraid of. This is actually pretty common. And so when, if you wake up and you're having that experience again, just tell yourself this is just a mental uh, trick that your brain's playing on, on you, and um, calm yourself down, and the experience will go away. Well, I ended up having the experience again a couple months later. Uh, and at first I woke up and I was absolutely terrified. My heart was pounding. I was suffocating. That very same kind of feeling, electricity and all that. Uh, but then I had the presence of mind at some point to say, oh, yeah, that's right. This is a mental trick. Uh, I, this is just a, a brain hiccup. And, I, and so I'm going to be okay. This is, this is not real. And so I just was, would tell myself that. And eventually the experience went away. It happened several more times. And each time I would wake up terrified, but I would tell myself, oh, this is just you know, a mental hiccup and it's going to go away. In fact, the last time it happened, I was about 16 or 17 years old. And I actually found that I could enjoy the experience. I, uh, I, I thought, well, look, I'm paralyzed here, and there's this buzz, but I know that it's not going to you know, kill me. This happened before. And so it, it, it's kind of cool. It feels like I'm, I'm, I'm stoned or something, you know? I was doing a lot of that at this point in my life, so I thought, I'm just going to kind of enjoy it like I'm, I'm, I'm stoned out here. And it was kind of enjoyable. And the minute I started enjoying it, it went away and never came back. <laughs> Isn't that delightful? Well, see, several decades later, I was reading a book on the brain, and I, I found an explanation for this phenomenon. And I'm sure some of you have had this. Uh, what it is, it's called sleep paralysis. They actually have a name for this, sleep paralysis. And it happens for this reason. We tend to assume that we just go to bed and fall asleep and then we wake up. There's an on button and an off button and that's all there is to it. But as a matter of fact, the brain is far more complex than our most complex computers. And it shuts down like a computer and then warm boots like a computer. Uh, there's an order that things go in as it's shutting down and as, as it's waking up. And usually, the conscious mind, your consciousness, is the first thing to shut down when you're going to sleep and the last thing to turn on when you're waking up. So usually when you wake up, by the time you wake up, by the time you're conscious, the part of your brain that controls bodily functions and stuff, that's already awake and so you can get out of bed and walk around. But sometimes it can happen that there's like a hiccup. Uh, the order gets screwed up and so you're aware, you're conscious, before the part of your brain that controls your body wakes up. And so you feel paralyzed. And, and, um, and you can feel like you're suffocating. And it can create other bodily sensations, like this tingly thing that you have going on. And what happens is that your brain always tries to interpret the experience. Your brain's always trying to make sense out of the world. It never stops interpreting the world. Even while you're sleeping... Uh, your brain is interpreting your experiences. Have you ever had it where you're, you're sleeping and, or you have a, a dream that you're freezing cold and then when you wake up, the room is really cold because you left the window open or something? Or one time I had this dream where I had, I had my wisdom teeth uh, pulled, all four of them, at the same time, and two of them were really deeply impacted. And that night I had a nightmare that an alien, this hideous alien, was reaching into my mouth and pulling my face out from the inside. So I, my face was you know, kind of being ripped through my mouth. It was terrible. He's just like yanking it out. And then I woke up, and that's exactly how I felt. My, the pain meds had worn off, and my face was, I felt like my face was being ripped out of my mouth. But see, my brain was interpreting the experience. Our brain's always doing that. And so what happens is that when, when you're, uh, people go through the sleep paralysis, your brain tries to make sense out of it. And, and because you're in a state of fear, 
It tends to be that we impose on that experience the most scary story we can imagine, the thing that we fear the most. And that's why, even though I didn't believe in demons or God or anything, I was sure that there's some kind of evil supernatural presence in this room that is attacking me. Uh, and it really seemed like there was. And the experience can be so scary, it could actually cause heart attacks in certain extreme cases. In fact, some of you may have, have, have read about this. In the uh, mid to late 70s, uh, uh, many of the, the Hmong population that lived in Vietnam migrated to America. And the reason is because they helped us during the Vietnam War. And so when, when the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam, the North Vietnamese were, were persecuting them, putting them to death and everything. And so they, they migrated over here. And when they initially came over here, we have over a hundred reports of healthy young men dying in their sleep. Uh, the scientists and other doctors tried to figure this out, and they could find no medical explanation for why these Hmong men were healthy young men were dying in their sleep. Couldn't figure it out. It was finally resolved. Most people consider it to be explained now uh, by a lady named Shelley Adler in the early nineties. And she's a specialist in, in folklore and medicine in traditional cultures, like the Hmong culture. And she studied this phenomenon, all these people dying in their sleep. And what she found out was this, and she published this in a scientific journal, that in, in Hmong culture, there's a, a, an ancient belief in a nocturnal demon, a night demon, a hideous demonic spirit that can show up at night. And if this, this demonic spirit shows up, it, uh, they called it, uh, and I'm going to butcher this name for sure, um, Donsag, Donsag. And if Donsag shows up, you are going to die. Because what Donsag does is first Donsag paralyzes you and then suffocates you, and you're a goner. And we know that sleep paralysis happens more frequently when people are under stress, and it tends to happen more to men than women. And so these people coming from Vietnam... These men were under a lot of stress. Over in, in Vietnam, they were being put to death. Then they come to America, and it's a foreign country. That's a lot of stress. They didn't know anything about this land. On top of that, she found out that there was a widespread rumor among many of the Hmong that America was saturated with demons. So they, they expected to be coming to a demonically infested land, which increased their stress even more. And the result of the whole thing is that because they're under stress, there's a higher frequency of sleep paralysis. And these folks, when they, when they wake up and they're paralyzed, they assume it's Donsag who's attacking them, and they assume they're going to die. And the terror that comes from the certainty of death ended up killing them. They had the heart attacks. The irony is that their certainty of death is what created their, their brought about their death. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And uh, that's why we have hundreds of cases of these Hmong men dying in their sleep. Now, why do I say all of that? I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. Have a good day. Stay warm. <laughs> Here's the thing. It, it really shows how, how, how powerful the mind is when it's interpreting things. The power of our interpretations of things. Uh, the, the stories we tell ourselves, the mind is always telling itself a story. And the stories we tell make a lot of difference. It determines what we feel is real, what impacts us, what shapes us. I mean, I had this experience of sleep paralysis, and I was able to enjoy it eventually because of the story I told myself. These folks have the same experience, but they have a heart attack. Why? Different stories are going on, different interpretations of reality. We all live in a story, in a narrative that makes sense out of the world. Um, it, 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 it comes from you know, the way we're raised, our environment, and a number of other factors. But we all live in the story. My, my stepmother, God bless her, uh, when she was a young girl, 
uh, came from a very, very poor family, and um, she always had to work, part of the family business. Yeah, she always was working, hardly ever could play. And so she uh, got a story, lived in a story, that allowing children to play is irresponsible. Children are supposed to work. If you let them play, they'll grow up to be irresponsible adults. And so as, I, as she was raising me, uh, if she ever came upon me playing, having fun, or my siblings, if we're enjoying ourselves, she would invariably, almost always, give us a job to do. It, it bugged her to see us playing and having fun. And she's thinking that we're irresponsible. And so she'd think of sometimes these random, I mean, totally random jobs. One time we're on vacation, uh, we uh, would go out on the St. Croix River and, and uh, uh, pitch an, uh, a tent on an island and just kind of live there for a couple of days. That was our vacation. And um, this one time, I was about 10 years old, and I went to the other side of this small island um, and found a little space where I could play because I had to hide to play. And I had a tennis ball and a glove, and I, and I was just throwing it against this log and pretending like I was in the World Series or something, okay? Superstar baseball player. So I'm out there enjoying myself throwing this ball, and for some, somehow mom caught me. Um, and... Um, she decides that this, this beach, which really wasn't a beach, no one was there, it was a bunch of rocks, but she thought this was supposed to be a beach and the rocks were getting in the way. And so I, my job was to remove all the rocks from this beach and throw them out in the lake so that people could park the boats there and play. So the rest of the day I spent throwing rocks in the lake. She thought she was doing me a favor. That's her story. That's what's real to her. Now, I think it's pretty twisted, but that's, you know, that, that's... So then I grew up with a story that if I'm going to have fun, i got to hide. I, I, I have to be in secret if I'm going to have fun. And so for much of my life, if I was enjoying myself alone, watching television, reading a book, whatever, and some, I hear someone coming to, into the room, I immediately would have a sense of disappointment. Uh, like, a, oh, shoot, kind of a thing. I, or even a little anger. Because the story's telling me that, that now the fun's going to end. Uh, Shelly would sometimes, when we were first married, she'd walk in the room, and, and I didn't know this, but... but she would look at my face, and I'd have like a scowl. Happy to see me, aren't you? And she says, what did I do? How come you're not happy to see me? It's like, I am happy to see you. I don't know, but the story, see, the story is, goes deeper than just what we are consciously believing. It, this becomes part of the fabric of your being. And so I, I would always have a sense of, of like, ugh, shoot, someone's going to take away my fun. Now, over, the, over time, uh, that story sort of dissipated because Shelly, and I'm surrounded with Shelly and some friends, who are, are, they believe I should have more fun. I work too much. I need to learn how to have more fun. And so I've gradually learned that it's okay to have fun and people aren't there to take away your fun. But see, the stories we live in are powerful. Our stories, they, 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 they give us our identity. They tell us what the purpose of life is, what the meaning of things is, why things happen the way they do, how we respond to things, what we feel is real, and, and the impact that things are going to have on us. It's all about how we interpret the world, the stories that we live in. And the thing that we need to know, and this is the important point, is that we don't just create our own stories. You can't just decide to have a story. We inherit stories, and the stories are reinforced by our social environment. My mom got her twisted story from her family, and then I got my twisted story from my mom. And then gradually, as I'm hanging out with my wife and friends, I'm, I, I absorb a different story that it's okay to have fun. I was able to... Um, respond calmly to the snipe paralysis because of the story I told. And I got that from my father and from Western culture, which tends to put an emphasis on, on, on scientific explanations. Uh, whereas in the, the, those young men uh, who died, they told themselves a terrifying story about a night demon who was certainly going to kill them. Our stories, that's the grid through which we see the world. 
So with that in mind, now we can turn to Colossians chapter 3 and see the story that we're supposed to be living in. Colossians 3 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Spontaneously sung sung from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I spoke about giving thanks last week. Here I want us to look at the message of Christ. The message of Christ is the story of Christ. It's it's a story that's centered on the cross. In fact, Paul sometimes, uh, when referring to the gospel, he just calls it the the, the message of the crucified Christ, or we we preach Christ crucified, or we preach the cross. It's centered on the cross, because it's a story about a God whose true character is revealed on the cross when he gives his life for us. It's a story about how God saves us and saves all of creation by means of the cross. It's a story about God calling a people, redeeming a people, and empowering a people to live in the way of the cross with that kind of love, manifesting that kind of self-sacrificial love to others. That's the story. And it's centered on the cross, but actually it involves the whole story of Israel leading up to the cross and the whole story of the church following after the cross. The story of the kingdom, how we're called to be ambassadors and and we're growing the mustard seed uh, by how we, we imitate Christ in everything we do. That's the story that Paul says should dwell richly among us. Now that word richly, plusios in Greek, it has two connotations. It can be translated as either among you, let the, let the, 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 the message of Christ dwell richly among you, or it can be let the message of Christ dwell, dwell richly in you. And so you'll find translations uh, are about half and half. Half of them saying among you, half of them saying in you. But the truth is that the word connotes both. That the, the, it should be translated, let the message of Christ dwell richly among you and in you. Because what the Lord is saying to us here is that unless we have the, rich, the, the, the message of Christ, the story of Christ dwelling richly among us in our environment, unless we're in an environment that's saturated with the message of Christ, and, and we're admonishing one another and teaching one another and modeling for one another the message of Christ, unless that's the case, we're not going to have the, the story of Christ dwelling richly inside of us. Because we all inherit a story. Whatever story we're surrounded by is a story that will eventually get into us. You see? Um, and, and so he's saying, let the message of, uh, the, of Christ dwell abundantly around you so that the story of Christ, the message of Christ, can dwell richly in you. And only then will that story be the story that determines what we experience to be real and what we experience uh, to, to, to be true and how things impact us. Only then will it be the grid through which we interpret everything only then will we see reality truly. Because uh, every other grid is to some degree screwed up. The, the, the grid of Jesus, the story of Jesus, the interpretation of the world through Jesus is the one true interpretation. And the fact that God is here telling us to surround ourselves with the message of Christ and to have the message dwelling richly in us, it tells us, the fact that he has to tell us this shows us that it's entirely possible, even likely, to believe in Jesus and yet not be surrounded with the message of Christ. It's, it's possible to believe in Jesus and yet not have Jesus, the story of Jesus dwelling richly in our hearts. It's possible to believe in Jesus and be surrounded by a, to- a story that's totally foreign to the gospel. And therefore it's possible to believe in Jesus and, and have inside of us to be living in a story that's not at all consistent with the gospel. It's possible to believe in Jesus and, and, and interp- interpret the world and your own experiences in ways that are entirely inconsistent with the gospel. It's possible to believe in Jesus 
And yet what feels real to us and what impacts us, well, it's the story of the world. Because that's the story we inherited. And to the degree that we are not surrounded by the, uh, a message that's saturated with, the, the, with Christ, uh, and the degree to which it's not inside of us, well, to that degree, our lives are not going to look distinctly kingdom-like. Uh, we'll live in, uh, our identity in Christ won't feel real to us. The truth about who God is won't feel real to us. The, 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 the reality of God's love isn't going to feel real to us. It's not on the inside of us. And the way that we look at the world and experience the world, well, it, it's going to be pretty much the same as it would be for anyone who didn't believe in Jesus because we're living in their same story. It's entirely possible to believe in Jesus, and yet the story we live in is just the story of America, the story of American values, the story of getting your best life now, the story of, of, of getting your identity by what you achieve and what you own and, and what kind of fame you have and, and who you impress. It's entirely possible to believe in Jesus and yet live in a story that you're a loser or that, that, that you, you've got to impress people to have any kind of worth. And if that's the story that surrounds you, that's the story that will eventually be in you. And what we need to see here, folks, so crucial is that we are every day of our life. I'm speaking here to Americans. Padrishers, you have to apply this to your own environments. But, but we have the story of, uh, of America and American values, that story that tells us what's important and, and what the purpose of life is. Uh, that, that, our environment is saturated with that all the time. Uh, the movies we watch, the television shows, the songs we listen to, um, you know, the, the internet, uh, all the magazines, the billboards, we are surrounded by a message that celebrates American values and puts them on display and encourages us to live according to them, admonishes us and teaches us to live according to them. That's a story that's out there all the time. And if we don't have a context, a social context, that is counter to that, well then, what story are we, we going to be conformed to? What story will we inherit? We need to have a social environment. All of us need to have a social environment where, where that is saturated with the message of Christ, that talks about Christ, that sings about Christ, that prays to Christ, so that that story is in us to fight the other story that's always trying to get in us. And Paul tells us how to do it. It's true. Paul tells us what, what that context looks like. He says, admonish one another, teach one another, uh, sing songs and hymns, you know, he's, he's saying, model the story of Christ, teach the story of Christ, encourage the story of Christ, and celebrate the story of Christ through songs and hymns and, and other things. We need environments where we do Colossians 3.16. And frankly, a sermon isn't enough. Well, one, once a week sermon, this is wonderful, but one hour is not going to combat the strong pull of the other story, the narrative that, that the world lives in. You're not going to fight that just with uh, a sermon once a week. No, we, we need a social context where the story is played out and forms us. It's got, the story that surrounds us is a story that will eventually be in us. And so all, all this is, is to, to explain why the New Testament puts such an emphasis on community. On community. Having people around us who talk about Jesus, who sing about Jesus, who encourage us to live in the way of Jesus... Um, the New Testament is emphatic on that, and now we can see why. We are social creatures. We're made in the image of a social God. We invariably absorb the story around us. And so we have to be very intentional about what is around us. Now, we can't move out to the desert and get a little you know, holy club going out there so we, we're not touched by the, the story of the world. No, we're not supposed to do that. We're in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world. So also, we need, we need smaller communities around us that are in the world, but not of the world. If you have any hope of swimming upstream in the environment of the pervasive empire culture, 
It's going to happen because you've got a subculture that, that, that you're part of and, and you're surrounded by. The message has got to be saturated around you if you're going to be saturated by the message. Oh, that's a good way of saying it. The message has got to be saturated around you if you're going to be saturated with the message. And so um, our bullseye here at Woodland Hills is, is this. We have our Sojourners community. Uh, there are groups of about 30 people. That is our idea of the New Testament church, because that's what the New Testament church would have looked like. And they do the one another's of the New Testament. They do the Colossians 3.16, admonishing, teaching one another. That's our bullseye. And we have two courses that people go through, 13-week courses, as a prelude to getting into those communities. And I encourage you to consider uh, becoming part of that. Now, the classes are full right now. We can only take in so many. So you're going to have to wait a little while on that. But uh, it's something to, to just you know, put on your radar screen and, and think about and pray about. But don't put this on hiatus until that happens. Um, there's other ways of, of, of surrounding yourself with the message of Christ. For example, consider, if, if, if you don't already have a community like this, uh, look at the friendships you have. Are these friends believers? And see, most friendships that we have are just... The story, that, the story that we live in is just the American story. So when we get together with friends, you just do what Americans normally do. You talk about the weather or the sports or the politics or whatever. And that's wonderful. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But why not bring the kingdom to those friendships? And just say, would you like to, in the light of Colossians 3.16, could we you know, pray sometimes together? And let's sing together sometimes. And uh, let's have, read a book together. Do some discipleship stuff together. Uh, let's encourage one another. And... And see, now you're starting to get in an environment where you're, you're, you're going to be surrounded by the story of Christ. Bring the kingdom to those friendships. Now, if those friendships have been living in the American story, um, at first that will feel awkward. It feels weird. It's a new thing. Sorry. But it's the only way. It's, it's got to happen if you're going to change your environment, you see? So bring the kingdom to the friendships you already have. Some of you might want to consider uh, going to our Cultivate classes. Uh, you learn a little bit about the kingdom, an aspect of the kingdom, but you also meet people. And that can be a great way to begin to develop connections that, that are, are kingdom connections, and you're beginning to surround yourself with uh, the message of Christ. Or you might consider volunteering in a ministry. Uh, or if you're in your 20s, uh, we've got a Resonate ministry that meets on Wednesdays. Consider coming, coming up to that, uh, becoming part of that. Or if you're one of the extroverts uh, who like to do this, just out in the gathering area, approach people that you see and talk to them, and maybe at some point you'll, 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 you'll resonate with somebody and, and you'll see that this is supposed to be a kingdom connection and, and, uh, and start moving it in that direction that way. However you do it, by whatever means, make sure, do not sell out to this individualism Christianity that's so popular today. The, you know, the bedside Baptist kind of thing, me and Jesus. Um, no, we need, we need community, not just a gathering, but community. Uh, the message has got to be around us if, if the message is going to be inside of us. And that's got to be the aspiration of our heart. It goes upstream in this individual's culture where I've got a right to do what I want, when I want, how I want, with who I want. And, and uh, you know, it's just kind of that rugged individualism. But folks, that's got to die. That's got to die. Because we are called to community. To be in the kingdom is to be part of a community. Now, we're going to be celebrating communion here in a moment. In fact, I want to ask the, uh, the worship team to come up here and the ushers to get ready. And communion is all about community. Even the word communion, it's being united together. Uh, this is the sign of the covenant where we are reminded of, of what Jesus did for us uh, and of what we are called to do in, in, because of what Jesus did for us. The bread and the cup are, are the symbol of Jesus' body and blood shed for us. It, it, it's representative of God's infinite love towards us. And as we take it in, 
we're transformed by it, and we commit to then living in that kind of love. But this sign of the covenant was given at the Last Supper. And it was a meal context. In the first century, a meal was the way that you said, you are my, my community. This was a community event. Um, and the new covenant is actually, a, it's not first and foremost a covenant with individuals. It's a covenant with a body of people. It's a covenant with individuals only because the individuals have chosen to become part of that body. And so we are, as we take communion, it's not just about us and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. It's the usness of this. And so as we take this, as we prepare our hearts, I want us to be focusing on the beauty of the love that was revealed on the cross. It's all centered on the cross. And it's seeing that beauty, that glory, is what transforms us and motivates us to now live that same way. We receive it, and then we manifest it in how we live. So be, be preparing your hearts for that as we now are going to take up an offering uh, and continue to worship the Lord. And then when we're done with that, I'll come and lead us in, in communion. so true. It's all about love, and love is defined in the New Testament by pointing us to the cross. First John 3, 16, here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. That's really the sum of the whole gospel. That's the story. That's the story right there. And that's what we're reminding ourselves of uh, with the sign of the covenant. God always gave reminders whenever he made a covenant. He gave people a sign to remember by, and communion is that sign. Last Supper, the night before he was betrayed, crucified, he took bread. The ordinary bread that they're going to eat, God always uses the ordinary. Invests it with such supernatural, infinite significance. He broke that bread in front of them and just said, this bread is my body, which is going to be broken for you. So as often as you take this bread, when you're together, you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. It was a cup as ordinary as this cup. Oh, holy grail. No, it's just a normal cup. He said, this cup is the cup of the new and the everlasting covenant. Because this cup is my blood, which is to be shed for you. And so whenever you come together and drink, uh, do it in remembrance of me. Remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. Which is simply to say, remember the cost that he paid for us. It tells us everything about God about the infinite beauty that he is, and it tells us everything about ourselves, how much worth he thinks he ascribes to us. We were worth this. And as we behold that beauty, 
Let it permeate every pore of your being because that's what motivates us to say, I love you and I want to live for you and I will live like that. We commit. The covenant involves two parties. He commits to being this kind of God towards us. We commit to being this kind of people towards him. So focus on him as we take this communion. Uh, You can go to the side of the auditorium. Whenever you feel ready, just get up and go to the sides of the auditorium. They have the elements there. Uh, If those who need gluten-free bread, we've got that in back of the camera here. Just come up here and you can take it there. Let's stay focused on the Lord. If you want to stand, you can stand. If you want to kneel, you can kneel. If you want to sit, you can sit. What's all important is that we are focused on him, the one who loved us to this point. He gave his life for us. singing that song. Why do you guys get so excited about blood? It sounds kind of gory. We always sing about blood. See, it's what the blood represents. What it represents is something to celebrate. It's, it's a, the perfect love of God. God loves us to this extent. Couldn't have gone further than he went to redeem a race of people who could, have, could not have deserved it less. It says everything we need to know about God and everything we need to know about us. He is that beautiful and he thinks we are that worth it. And that says it all. I pray as we leave this place today, we do it with a commitment to keep our eyes focused on him. Saturate your environment with the message of Christ. And let that message saturate you to be transformed into his likeness. Go out, love on the world. God bless you guys. Love you.